on 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton, and it is uh, wonderful to be chatting via the wonders of Zoom today to Yumiko Kadota. She's the author of the book, Emotional Female. How are you, Yumiko? I'm good, Clayton. Thanks for having me. Look, it's great to have you here. Um, and I do like, uh, and, and perhaps better start with the title of the book too. I, my my sense is it's designed to be slightly ironic here in one sense, uh, as well as saying, hey, we're all human too, uh, a part of that. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, the, the purpose of the book, first of all, and then we might get stuck into a bit more of your story? Yeah, definitely. That There is a bit of irony in the title there. I don't think any woman wants to be called an emotional female. And it's definitely one of the, the themes of the book to discuss sexism and misogyny in, in the workplace, particularly in surgery, which is a male-dominated field. But um, yeah, the, the book Emotional Female is my story of when I was a junior doctor and medical student and navigating that, um, that career path. And eventually I, I do leave. No spoilers here, it's, it's on the blurb. So, <laughs> so yeah, so it's already on the cover. Um, but I wanted to talk about what led me there and how I've picked myself up from there and recovered from that experience. Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh- Obviously, I don't have anything in involvement in terms of the world of surgery and hospitals and these sorts of things. But um, people who have been on the front line, as the new phrase has become of, mm. of our world the last year or so, have been those who are in the health profession and especially those in hospitals. We've seen that uh, through what COVID has done to our world over the past little while. So uh, this has come to the fore and perhaps to all of our minds more and more. Let's get stuck into your journey. Has it always been something for you that you wanted to get into the world of uh, that health profession and, 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 and being a doctor? Yeah, definitely. From when I was a high school student, I always knew that medicine was one of my interests. Um, I had other interests as well. I really love music. So I had a few different hobbies growing up, but I knew that I loved science at school and I liked that working in healthcare means I get to work with people as well. So just the combination of of caring for others and science was, I think, a good combination for me and my personality. So it was definitely something that I I knew early on. Yeah. What about family life? You know, different families have different expectations on kids Mm. as they they grow up. Was yours one of whatever you like to do and however you like to do it? Or was it a, uh, hey, we've got to achieve certain areas here? I think that some of my upbringing was quite traditional. So my background is Japanese. Both of my parents are Japanese. And my mother used to be called Kyoiku Mama, which means education mother. So I guess tiger mom in in (laughs) Australia. So she was quite typical in that she always made sure that I practiced piano every day and did my homework. But ultimately, I didn't feel too much pressure from my parents to to end up in medicine, although there is this trope of the Asian parent wanting you to do um, either medicine or law. I think it's just one of those common jokes. Um, And funnily enough, I did end up in medicine and my two sisters studied law, but it wasn't by by design or by coercion in, in any way. But that's what we ended up. But doing (laughs) yeah and clearly in that sense uh, a family who uh, can think highly um, to be able to to work into those professions there's a lot of hard work and there's also an ability to think at a a high level uh, too Uh, as you sort of got into this you know here it is you've worked hard you you've desired this yourself as you've got into it Um, uh, you you do all the study and that's intense in itself Um, and you know we're skipping a lot of things here but then you, you you start into the, the work of it. And, and I suppose this is why we you've written this book and this is why you want to talk about it. 
Uh, what was it like as you you entered what was the world of the Australian health system and and from that you know doctor's perspective in hospitals? Initially, I really loved it. I mean, I studied as an undergraduate student, so I was 17 when I started med school, studied for six years, and I was still quite young when I started. So I had a lot of enthusiasm. I was learning lots of new things. It was a huge, steep learning curve for me, but I did enjoy my internship and my early years as a, as a junior doctor. I think it was only later on after a few years of working that I became more aware of some of the more I guess toxic issues of of working in a public hospital and that's some of the things that I wanted to highlight in emotional female not not to necessarily discourage anyone from going into healthcare because it can be a, a wonderful and rewarding profession but just to be aware of the potential barriers particularly if you do come from a more marginalized group whether you're a woman in surgery or whether you're from an ethnic minority there are I guess unique challenges that that other doctors might not experience. Yeah. Uh, can I ask in that, you know, you've mentioned two specific areas which yes. might be marginalised in it. Is there also a, uh, I mean, there seems to be from the outside, a, a culture of expectation of uh, just doing ridiculous amounts of hours. It's, there's a culture of um, you you have to be a superwoman, a superman to be able to, to do this. Is, is that a fair assumption of how it's actually treated internally as well? Yeah, definitely. That's a very fair observation. It almost felt like a competition sometimes about who could work the most. How many days in a row are you working? How many hours did you work in the previous week? A lot of people do talk about it, almost like it, um, they're, they're gloating about how much they're working. And um, I recently shared a panel with um, Adam Liao, who used the word fetishizing. And I think that's a really good word. He said, let's not fetishize hard work. It's not it's not cool to work that hard when you're compromising your physical and, and mental well-being. So I think that sometimes, particularly if there's toxic masculinity in the workplace, I think that there's too much emphasis on, on working these ridiculous hours and it's not healthy for anyone. Yeah, it, it is strange, isn't it, how we, we tend to, in culture generally, uh, that seems to be something that is, that is there. And, you know, I think of certainly those people who are looking after us in our health, uh, the last thing I want them to do is be completely stressed out mentally and stressed out physically. And the, it seems like there's much more chance of mistakes actually occurring in those yeah. environments. So why would I, why would I be wanting that? That doesn't seem yeah. to Yeah. I mean, there's been so many studies that show that if doctors are burnt out or sleep deprived, it leads to more mistakes. And it's one of those jobs where you can't afford to make a mistake. You know, it can lead to, to complications and even death. So it's something that I hope, um, healthcare institutions take seriously because we do need doctors and all healthcare professionals to be functioning at their best because it does affect the care that we give to patients. Yeah, uh, growing up as a, a with a dad as a pharmacist, you know that was something from his perspective that he knew he he just needed to dispense one thing wrong or put one direction wrong on a on a bottle. Um, uh, it was something from his perspective. He wanted mm. to make sure he was right as we went through. That was yeah. certainly something that was known in our house. And, and in yeah. our um, Yumiko, I, I want to ask also around your perspective. We've talked a bit more general around some of them. Mm-hmm. Could you give us some of the examples? And and I suppose leading to the point of writing a book about it as well. <laughs> yeah. um, some might say, well, you know, why write a book about some of the, the, the whinges that might occur mm-hmm. a, around there? Clearly, that's not how you see it. This is actually to say, look, this is the experience and 
And can we make something better out of this? So yeah. could you actually give us some of the examples that occurred for you? It's funny that you mentioned whinges because I have been trolled a little bit since writing the book and I did have someone send a message the other day calling me a classic whining Asian. Um, I didn't realise that that was even a thing, mm. that Asians are whiny. But, um, <laughs> I, I do go through a few different um, experiences. For example, I, I had a patient demand a white doctor she looked at me and said oh I'll have an Aussie thanks um before I could even speak just 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 because she saw that I was Asian she had this perception that I was some you know overseas trained doctor who wouldn't know how to look after her so that was probably the most shocking example of racism I've received from a patient where Mm -hmm. I felt like I had to constantly try and prove my competence, even though I was equally qualified and I did my studies here in Australia. I guess based on how I look, some people judged me on, <laughs> on that rather than my, my actual um, abilities. And it can be harder being a woman in surgery. In Australia, only 11% of surgeons are women. It's wow. such a small number. And I think that that lack of visibility can unconsciously affect you sometimes. And sometimes it's not even malicious. It's just that people aren't used to seeing a, a woman in the operating theatre. So, you know, for example, I'd be sitting with a patient and carefully examining them and explaining the surgery that they require, doing their consent form, explaining all the steps of the surgery and still get told at the end of that consultation, oh, so when do we get to see the doctor? <laughs> or I'll wheel them into the operating theatre and, and a patient might say, oh, are you doing the surgery? And it's, I think it's an innocent thing. It's just, you know, it's surprising to some people to see someone who looks like me, you know, a small Asian woman, you know, possibly doing their surgery. But it's little things like that that um, I think add up over time when you realise that um, you're not what people expect and you get treated differently because of it. So, yeah, some of the examples in the book are, shocking and um yeah quite horrible but other times it's it's a subtle thing like that where it's just a bit of an element of surprise or misunderstanding yeah did you find more of the um i'm not quite sure what the right word is the stress (laughs) or the strain coming from the patients or from other staff where was the pressure points perhaps more for you in, in the end It was a little bit of both, but I think I felt the most disappointed in my colleagues because we're meant to be a caring profession and we look after others and yet we can't look after each other sometimes. So towards the end, I was getting extremely burnt out. I became both physically and mentally unwell. I actually had um, a, a bit of an episode on the way to work where I lost continence in the car. And that was really shocking for me because I'd always been healthy. So to lose control of my basic bodily functions was really horrifying. And so I went to see my GP and my GP wrote a letter to the hospital expressing her concerns over my welfare. And the hospital didn't take it seriously. And other surgeons in the hospital even spoke up on my behalf saying that I was working too much. Um, But my department just didn't change anything. And if anything, things got worse because they released an updated roster that showed that I'd be working more hours in the second half of that term. So it definitely, um, it definitely was an experience for me where I felt more disappointed in my colleagues than anybody else. Yeah. We're going to be back uh, with the author of the book, Emotional Female, in just a moment, uh, Yumiko 
Kadota is my guest. We're going to be chatting to her next about that decision to actually end up leaving the profession. What did it mean for her, uh, the unraveling of that? And also, what was then uh, the hope that she found as she stepped into the next part of her world? I think it's something that's relevant, perhaps, for all of us, uh, not just if you're in the health profession, but maybe you're in a, a place of stress and feels like you can't move on. What would it mean to actually move on? More on the way here on 89.9 The Light. In conversation with Clayton. 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton and Yumiko Kadota. She's the uh, author of the book Emotional Female, the uh, byline with it, a brilliant young surgeon's journey through ambition and dedication to exploitation and burnout and ultimately having to leave the profession as well, which is where we're, we're up to. Uh, Yumiko, can you, you take us through that idea, that, that, that next step where you said, all right, all of this work that I've done, the dreams that I've had, uh, the work that I've now put in, uh, you know, you've now done all these hours, you got to a place of exhaustion uh, through this. Uh, you know, many would say, well, I've just got to keep pushing through. I, I just have to keep going. I, I'm not going to throw away the life's dream with this. But you decided to actually take a different path. Can you take us through that? Yeah, it was very difficult. I did keep pushing and pushing, but I think the moment when I realized that I couldn't keep pushing was when I when I um, found my physical health affected, not just my mental health as well. I mean, over the years, I was used to working long hours and and, and dealing with stress. I guess working in, in a hospital can be stressful. Emergencies come in. There's a lot of things that you can't anticipate each day. So there's a lot of stressful situations. But that was the first time that I felt like my physical stress, I mean, my physical health was really suffering. So I made that decision to leave, but it wasn't an easy one. As you say, you spend a lot of time studying and working towards this goal and you kind of have blinkers on and you just don't know what you're possibly going to do if you quit. So it was something that was a hard decision, but I knew that I needed to put my health first. And I guess as a health professional, I should have known that sooner, but but that that's when I decided. And that was three years ago. Yeah. Uh, what did you find then? It, it wasn't, seems like your, your story wasn't, oh, look, I've got this another awesome opportunity here. This is what I'm going into. It was actually, I need to leave this one behind to find out what I'm going to go into. Um, what did you discover as you left that? I'd imagine that the first few days would be quite different from high levels of work and time to, to nothing there. But what did you find as you've gone over the past few years? Yeah, you're right. I was so scared of unemployment because I'd always been working so hard and to not do anything was really scary. I mean, initially I felt relief when I quit, but then I started to panic thinking, oh my goodness, what have I done? <laughs> but I guess, I mean, I do have to acknowledge my privilege here in that I did have a good education and not everyone has the same opportunities, but I guess I had that as a, as a safety thing because I knew that I had a degree. I knew that I had skills that were potentially transferable, but even so, there's no guarantee that I'm going to find something else to go into. And I was also very acutely aware that by quitting my job in New South Wales Health, that I potentially blacklisted myself from other jobs within New South Wales hospitals. So I thought, well, that's it. I'm never going to get a job in public health again. So that was definitely scary. And I did have a conversation with one of my mentors who's a surgeon at the children's hospital about what to do next. And his advice was really good. I needed to hear it at the time. He said, look, 
don't be thinking about your next job. You need to heal. You need to get better first. And that's something that I needed to hear because I wouldn't have um, stopped to, to let myself recover from what I'd gone through. I became actually quite mentally unwell and eventually became diagnosed with clinical depression. And if I hadn't been forced to stop and allow myself to to get better, um, I wouldn't have been able to take the next step. For, so for me, the most important next step was actually to do nothing and mm. heal. Yeah. Isn't that a tough one for so many? Um, and there's certainly many people I've had a conversation with, both in my family and on this show uh, with myself at times <laughs> as well, around the need to heal and the decision to allow healing to occur. Yeah. Uh, that's a big thing in itself. Uh, a lot of people feel like it's a selfish thing, but it's not. Um, you know, there's a very um, common phrase of um, you can't pour from an empty cup. And I was completely empty then. So I needed to allow myself to refill. Yeah. Um, how long did that take or is that still happening? It's still an ongoing process, but I'm so much better than I was before. Um, it's been three years now. And I think you know, actually last June was the first time I actually felt a bit more normal, I guess, yeah. <laughs> if normal is even a thing. Um, but in, I, I got quite unwell. I was in hospital for six weeks at the end of 2018. I've been on lots of different medications. I had my own little eat, pray, love journey, and I went and became a yoga teacher. So I've been exploring lots of different ways to heal. And you know, as a doctor, I, I studied the Western medicine paradigm and, and that's what I believe in. But I also believe in having a more holistic approach to, to getting better. So for me, reading philosophy texts, doing yoga, doing art, listening to music, all of these other things were really important to me as well, as well as human connection, me, being um, close to my sisters and my family. That was a really special thing for me because they really did help me pull through. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, my, my take here is that it felt like that work was the thing. Um, mm. Work was the thing that you had to let go of. And instead of actually going to another work, um, which, you know, many people might do as the, as the answer, you realized actually it was a, it's a, a personal journey that was needed most out of that as you've gone mm. forward with it. From the work side of things, ha has there been other things that have opened up for you because you've realized perhaps it's not the be all and end all? Yeah, definitely. I think that you can still find something that fulfills you, even if it's not your plan A. I think I read somewhere that um, the average person changes careers like four to seven times in their lifetime. And for me, that was something that I never really thought about because when you go through a vocational degree, there's only one end goal. And I've since talked to other doctors who, who who kind of challenged this idea that becoming a you know a consultant in whatever medical specialty is the end goal because even when you get there it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be happy or fulfilled there's lots of other things that you can do and one of the things that I've always enjoyed is teaching and so I've had some opportunities to teach medical students anatomy back at my old uni so things do come up you know I mean it's not always what you think you're going to end up doing but I think that if you're interested in something and you love something, you, you can really go through a few different pathways in life. And it's it's okay to, to change if you have to. And ultimately I needed to make choices that 
were going to allow me to to live a happy and healthy life and it wasn't going to be through surgery for me because I was yeah I was getting pummeled with work yeah um Yumiko as we ask and, and perhaps wrap up here what is it that you have now so that you actually have now uh, three years on from this moment and what have you actually been able to let go of in that time uh, are you able to clarify that I, I suppose I'm asking specifically mm. for somebody who might be listening at the moment saying mm. well I might not be specifically a surgeon who's going through a hospital but I, I'm looking to say this moment in where I am I, I, I'm going to need to let go what, what, what do I what do mm. I look forward to having a hold of definitely I think that I had to question things like identity and ego as I as I recovered, I think that when you spend so much of your life doing the one thing, it becomes part of your identity. But this is something I tell medical students and, and this applies to all other areas as well. I say to them, medicine is what you do, not who you are. And I think you can substitute medicine with anything else that you're doing and just remind yourself that just because you, you spend however many hours doing something, it doesn't mean that that is all of you. There are so many other facets to being a human. And um, yeah, nowadays I feel like what I've gained from this is a sense of balance and being able to set my boundaries. And now I work part-time. I have been able to go back to some clinical work. So I do assist a couple of um, a lovely surgeons who, who have take me, taken me under their wing and I, I assist them in, in private hospitals. So it's different to the kind of frontline public hospital work that I was doing before, but um, it is possible to to find that balance. And for me, a lot of it was also um, looking at my ego, think, thinking, do I need to be this solo surgeon? That's what I wanted to do. But am I okay with being someone's assistant? Am I okay with playing second fiddle? And, and I am. I'm very happy with what I'm doing now. And um, I do it because it allows me to time to do other things. I, I have time to exercise and do yoga and catch up with family and friends and all of those things. So it just depends on what your priorities are. So for anyone who's listening, I would just encourage you to think about, you know, what kind of life you want to lead um, and try and lead a life that aligns with your values and your priorities. And if what you're doing now doesn't align with that, it's okay to take a step back and, and change what you have to do in order to achieve that. Yeah. Yumiko Kadoda, thank you so much for your time today. We wish you all the best with the book Emotional Female. And uh, thanks for being so honest and real with some of the stories that you've shared. Uh, I really appreciate having a chat with you. Thanks, Clayton. This is In Conversation here on 89.9 The Light.